Good morning, everyone. I want to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats as we continue with our teaching time together this morning. My name's Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, we're going to start off, uh, we're going to play a little game. This is a game of expectations versus reality. So this is a fun game that we play in all kinds of areas of our lives. So um, we're going to walk through a few areas of life and we're gonna, just going to test our expectations versus what ends up being true in that particular category, okay? So we'll start at the shopping mall. So at the shopping mall, when you go into a shopping establishment, an expectation might be that if you walk in, there would be 50% of the store for women, 50% of the store for men. Let's look at the reality. This is the reality at best. Am I right, men? And we have to walk through all of the women's section to get to the guys' stuff. And then there's like 10% of what the women have available to them, retail floor space-wise. So let's look at another one. Uh, let's talk about Facebook. Let's say you don't go on Facebook for a week. Your expectation might be, oh, fantastic, 25 new friends with us. I'm going to have 35 messages and 95, whatever the little globe stands for. But the reality might be this, a single like of an old post that you put up sometime in 2013. What about the differing expectations that you have when it comes to organization, as parents, maybe you have a nice little spot for your children when they come in the door to put things and homework goes in neat little folders and backpacks get hung up on, on hooks. Or maybe you're a teacher and your classroom is supposed to look like this. And then this happens. This is how children organize themselves. They just dump it in a big jumbled mess. I think um, there's a few kind of prolific offenders to point out on the expectation versus reality spectrum. One of them is Christmas. Christmas is really bad for this, right? Here's what we expect of Christmas, <clears throat> a visit to Santa at the mall, and then here's the reality of what ends up happening. Children are screaming, the Santa is a little less than maybe perfect for the pictures that we're thinking to be taking. Or another prolific offender is fast food. We see it on commercials and in web ads all the time, and it looks so appetizing on the screen, and then you order it, and it comes to you in the little box, and it looks not quite like it looks on the commercial in some way. We'll do two more. Um, now, some of you had an expectation when you were parents with uh, young children, and you thought to yourself, you know, when my child is young, I'll just, I'll snuggle and cuddle them, just blissfully drift off into peaceful sleep, and then you actually try it, and the reality is a little bit more like this. The kid is like hogging the whole bed, and their foot is in your face, and it stinks, and like, it's just not happening the way that you pictured it in your mind. And another prolific offender is Pinterest. Pinterest gives us these expectations for stuff. And we think, and we look on there and we think, oh, look at these wedding favors or, or kids' birthday party things. Oh, these would be fantastic. Like, they look so pretty. I'm going to try doing that. And then you actually try it. 
and it turns out more like this. Ugh. Pinterest, how we hate you. <laughs> Setting our expectations in places that are completely unreasonable. But then what happens is, when our expectations over and over and over again are dashed and just decimated and reality kind of sets in, sometimes we're shocked at first, but then over time we kind of come to a new settled set of expectations. And men, this is for you. We begin to tell ourselves something about expectations. We say this, always aim low. <laughs> Little toilet humor there for you this morning. Always aim low with your expectations. Now here at Jericho, we've been moving through the book of Isaiah. And we've heard right from the start of the book of Isaiah, a sense of warning that things are not right. Things are not as they should be. Things are not moving in the right direction with people's expectations. And God has expectations of their people, and they're not paying attention to them, and they're not meeting expectations. So God repeatedly reveals to them areas in which they are not meeting expectation. He says to them, you know what? You're disingenuine in your worship. You're treating people who are poor as disposable or as less than. You're engaged in the pursuit of unbridled materialism with no thought to the consequences. You've forgotten about God. You've forgotten about the life that he's invited you to live and the calling that he has on your lives as a people to be a blessing to those around you. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, God says to people, I expected, he uses an agricultural metaphor, I planted you and I expected to reap a crop of justice, but instead I found oppression. I expected to harvest righteousness and find righteousness, but instead all I hear is cries of violence. And so after repeated offense by multiple people and after repeated warnings by multiple prophets, God has allowed the nation of Babylon to come in and to capture Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And the people from the least to the greatest have been sent off into exile in Babylon. And so now the people are sitting in Babylon and the prophet begins to speak to them at the end of the book about a rescue, a deliverance that is coming from the exile in which they are currently living. That God has initiated a rescue plan for them that is in the works. Someone is coming to redeem them and set all things right. And their expectations begin to go higher and higher and higher because the prophet keeps saying this over and over and over again. And in this section of Isaiah, we have four repeated songs or poetic interludes that describe God's expectation of what he's up to. They're called four servant songs. And they give insight into what the people should expect from the deliverer, the divine servant that God is sending. And so in chapter 42, God says, I'm sending you a deliverer, and this deliverer will bring justice. And this deliverer will set the captives free. And the people say, yes, that is good. Uh, we want some of that. 
That's what we need. Right now we're in captivity. We need deliverance. We need justice. Wrong has been done to us. We've been displaced. We need to be set free. So they think, that sounds awesome. Good stuff. Send more of that, God. Chapter 49, God says again to them, my servant will bring freedom. My servant will bring comfort and compassion. Yeah, freedom. That sounds good. We need freedom from these oppressive Babylonians. Would send us more of that, God. Let's, let's, uh, we'll, we'll receive that from you. So their expectations get higher. Chapter 50, God says, this servant will do my will. This servant will bring comfort to those who are weary. And they're picturing, yeah, that's right. I need comfort. That all sounds really, really good. And then in chapter 52, at the end, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. In verse 13, the prophet begins to say, my servant will prosper and will be highly exalted. And the people think, oh, this is the best of all, highly exalted, that God's going to bring a deliverer that will bring prosperity to us. This is fantastic. This is exactly what we need. It's sounding better and better and better all the time. God's sending someone to kick some Babylonian butt. He's sending someone to pay back all those people that have wronged us in our lives. And this servant's going to march in in victory and going to lead us out in, out of captivity. It's going to be a great military victory and it's going to be awesome political victory. And we're going to be on the winning team. We're going to be yet again highly respected amongst the nations. You know, we're number one. We're number one. This is going to be fantastic news that God is giving to us. And then at the end of Isaiah 52, there's some surprises that begin to kind of pop up in this description that this servant is going to accomplish and how amazingly victorious this servant will be and how the servant is going to get victory. Isaiah 52 verse 14, right after my servant will prosper, will be highly exalted, says this, many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human, and from his appearance one would scarcely know that he was a man. He will startle many nations, and not in a good way. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they have not been told. They will understand what they have not heard about. David's going to pick up reading, and you can follow along in your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 53, verse one in the New Living Translation. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root sound very powerful. in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. But I thought we were going to Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Acquainted with, with deepest grief. I thought there was prosperity We turned our coming. backs on him and he looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep. Have strayed away. I don't like this talk about us we going have left in different God's directions. Path to follow our own. 
Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. I thought this was supposed to be a word of hope. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. I don't understand. Unjustly condemned. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. What about the justice for other people? He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. That doesn't sound like the Lord's plan to me. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear away, bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. I thought this was supposed to be about getting justice for wrongs that were done to me. I thought this servant was supposed to bring freedom from oppression. I thought God's will was for Babylon to be overthrown and that God's people would go out with rejoicing and singing and the trees of the field would clap their hands and it would be a big party. But I... Why does it end with his death? This is not my expectation of deliverance. This is not the picture that I saw in these other servant songs. I don't like this talk of suffering. I don't like this talk of uh, the servant being about suffering. Where's the prospering stuff? Where's the, where's the exaltation stuff? The happy clappy like, like where's the Joel Lustein kind of stuff? It sounds a lot less like deliverance and a lot more like suffering. It doesn't sound like joy and tranquility and all that kind of stuff. And see, the people of Isaiah's day are left with this sense of dissonance. And they're left with a sense of dissonance because not only of the content of it, but it's not actually explained to them who in the world is this servant. Like who is the prophet talking about? It doesn't explain in the text who it is. Who is this deliverer of whom the prophet speaks? And here's where we get a completely unfair advantage because we get to cheat, right? Because hindsight is 20-20. And in the book of Luke and throughout the New Testament, we see the passage Isaiah chapter 53 referenced over and over and over again repeatedly. It's one of the most quoted exegetical pieces of scripture from the Old Testament in the New. And it's quoted often to refer specifically to Jesus. And Jesus specifically picks up the same wording. When people ask him, what are you here to do, Jesus? Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those that are bruised. 
In Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, we have people around Jesus, John the Baptist even, questioning and saying, "Um, Jesus, a question for you. Are you the anointed one, the Messiah, the deliverer we've been expecting? Because we're a little confused about the way in which you're acting this out and living it out. And so we're just unclear. John the Baptist says and his disciples say, should we keep looking for someone else? Or are you that person? And the tricky part is we have a very hard time reading through Isaiah 53 and not immediately thinking, ooh, I know the answer, I know the answer, it's Jesus. My Sunday school training is paying off nicely here. But yet, that's true. And it's an incredibly resonant and specific and detailed prophetic word written over 600 years in advance before the arrival of Jesus about very specific aspects of his life and his ministry and his death and his suffering, being killed like a common criminal but being laid in a rich man's tomb. And and it's a beautiful reminder to us about the prophetic continuity of scriptures. But the kicker is the people of Isaiah's day don't know this is about Jesus. They don't get the privilege of having read the end of the story and getting that insight. They're just left thinking, so a deliverer is coming at some point, but the deliverance sounds very not like what I'm expecting. It's different and I'm kind of confused. You see, just like them, and just like us, our expectations are usually shaped by our experiences in some way. And so think about their experiences. Their experience as a group of people about deliverance would be shaped by the rise and fall of three military powers in their lifetime that have overthrown and threatened their nation. And they've seen incredible acts of violence and war perpetuated against them. They've seen authority wielded with brutality and force. And every time that that's happened to them, what's forged in their thinking is the only way that we can resist this is to fight fire with fire. We need to meet force with stronger force. And the way that you accomplish victory is by being stronger than the one that you are overthrowing or displacing, right? And so the dissonance between their expectations of deliverance and the prophetic reality that's uttered is incredibly high. Because the people have their set of expectations of how God is going to act to fulfill his promises to them. Because in their minds, God is going to act to send them a victorious warrior, a strong political leader, someone who can amass power and influence and then wield it to deliver them from their oppressors. This is going to be a king of David's line and David's stature. This is their expectation of what deliverance looks like. 
And it's not an unrealistic picture of what it has and could look like. Because in their world, this is how the world works. And so their expectation of if God is going to send us a deliverer, this is the category. And we see this over and over again, even in the life of Jesus. These, these categories existed so strongly and were so deeply forged in the ancient world and in Jewish thinking and mentality when Jesus showed up on the scene. Even his own disciples have a default setting of believing that this is how Jesus is going to operate. Okay, Jesus, is now the time you're going to kind of amass political authority and influence? You're going to like take over the Romans now and push them out? Like now's the time? Okay, are, are we going to get like some, uh, you know, uh, political influence or some military influence? Even in Jesus' own followers, these categories still exist. And expectations of how God brings deliverance. And I am continuously amazed when I read scripture at my own experiences and how that expectations of how God works is forged in my mind and in my thinking. And how God acts in so many ways that completely different than I expect him to. And I think I would have also expected all the things that the people had on their list for God to do for them. And yet in this chapter and in the servant songs in Isaiah, we see God attempting to reset the default for his people on expectations around totally different lines. You see, God works in completely different ways than we expect him to work. And God says, you know what the reality is going to be? You expect a victorious warrior. I am going to deliver you through vicarious suffering. You expect someone to work all within the structures of power. I'm going to send you someone who's a rondering rabbi from the marginal places of the world. Bethlehem, Nazareth, nothing good can come from those places. Even in Jesus' day, people reference that. You expect someone who's going to amass political influence and power. I expect that I am sending you someone who will give his very life away. And you expect someone of David's line and stature and David's operational mode. I'm going to send you a king, yes, but he's going to wear very, very different robes and crowns than you would expect. God is trying to communicate to his people that their expectations of deliverance and the way in which he works are not the way that he intends to deliver them. And you might say, oh, well, Brad, we're more sophisticated than all of that. I mean, we, we know how God works, don't we? I mean, it's just we wouldn't fall into those types of habits or patterns that are influenced by our culture or by our expectations or default setting? Oh, really? Let's think about how the religious right and the moral majority try to gain access to the halls of power and influence and use political levers to legislate morality and ethics. 
think about people that you know on social media or Facebook who spend all their time lecturing others about how a tone that communicates when you become as enlightened as I am, you too will understand how what I understand. I think about even in my own heart a desire sometimes when I'm in a conversation or in a setting to use words or language or persuasion or personality to convince people to do things that I want them or need them to do. You see, we're not beyond any of this stuff. Seeking power, influence, and control through the means of the world. But in this text, we're reminded poignantly that the kingdom of God runs on a different operating system, a different template than the kingdom of this world. Donald Crable, in his excellent book, uses a title that I think helps to capture this. And he says, when we think about the way that the kingdom of God works, it's an upside-down kingdom. This is the way in which we are called to live. The way of following Jesus is so backwards and so counterintuitive to our Western cultural norms, it's upside down. In the kingdom, you win by losing. You're first by being last. You gain the whole world by laying down your life for another. And this is what it means to follow God in the way of Jesus. And this is why it's hard work. Because we're constantly bumping up against a dissonance between our expectations of how God works and the reality of how he works. Let me give you an example of this. In her book, Out of Sorts, local author and blogger Sarah Bessie writes about an affliction that she calls the evangelical hero complex. And she puts her finger on something that I think is helpful and interesting And that is that some of us have grown up in an evangelical subculture that has fed us certain messages about life. And some of them have been very helpful, and some of them have been maybe less than helpful. One of the messages that the evangelical subculture can feed us about life and about the way that the world operates is about expectations of who we are and what life is supposed to be about and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the world. Pastor Wally started uh, with us here this week at Jericho and when he was unpacking his office, I came across a very, um, shall we say, interesting decor element that I was a little bit curious about. This is a deluxe Miracle Jesus action figure that came out of one of the boxes that he was unpacking. And it says, uh, Jesus uh, feeds 5,000 with five loaves, which are handily included, and two fish, turns water into wine. And it says right on here, the instructions are, you're supposed to reenact this miracle. And to assist you with this, for whatever strange and odd reason, the maker of the deluxe Miracle Jesus action figure has given Jesus glow-in-the-dark hands, which I'm not sure are in the text, but that seems like what a superhero would come with in some way. 
So, you know, there's that. <laughs> but sometimes we don't just think about Jesus as a action figure and evangelical hero. Sometimes the messaging that we've gotten through the subculture is that we too are evangelical heroes and we develop a little bit of a complex. Remember what I said earlier, our expectations are not only governed by our experiences, but they're also governed by whatever continues to feed our expectations. And I would share Bessie's concerns when she notes that we've been fed a fairly steady diet of things like, your generation is going to change the world, and you as a Christian, the Christian life is about doing big things for God, hard and radical things for God. And it's like those things can be true, and it's given, they're given with wise intentions, I think, to try and encourage us to take risks for God, which we talk about regularly around here. But one of the not-so-subtle consequences or shadow sides of being fed a steady diet that you can begin to see yourself as an evangelical hero and think, yes, it is my job to walk around doing big, hard, radical things for God all of the time. And it's like then we develop this notion that we're a bunch of superheroes running around saving the planet. And if you listen to and absorb this messaging, which again I think is given with good intentions, if you absorb it uncritically, you can get a message about the Christian life and that impression can be that real Christian living is about doing superhero-style stuff that's big and radical and hard and impossible, and that is what we are all about. And if your life then, as a Christian, does not resemble that, then you begin to think to yourself, I wonder if maybe I'm a real Christian after all. I mean, maybe my job isn't to save the whole world. But sometimes in the evangelical world, we have this notion that the bigger or more impressive a platform you have, or the more exciting things that you do, then those are the really spiritual people. And if your life seems, well, fairly ordinary well, there must be something wrong with you because clearly you're not doing the superhero type stuff. And there's a very popular song that gets a lot of airplay on Christian radio these days and the lyrics say this, we know we were made for so much more than ordinary lives. It's time for us more than just to survive. We were made to thrive. Anything is possible. And then it repeats 15 times because that's what evangelical songs do. Now, I don't think the band is out to lunch. They're not trying to, you know, trick us into something. But, like, think for a minute about the questioning message that that song sends to us. It reinforces that message that if my life is more mundane, small acts of faithfulness, they just don't really count because that's not thriving and joy unspeakable, and anything being possible. Like if I volunteer for my breakfast club at my kid's school every week, or uh, my life seems to be mostly about just wiping bums and cleaning up Cheerios for the umpteenth time, or 
I'm just faithfully instilling the fundamentals of mathematics to middle schools in the hope that they can understand it. Or day after day, I do a good job at fabricating sheet metal into refrigerator doors. Or yet again, I'm picking up a wheelchair from another care home and putting it into the storage so it can be shipped to Guatemala. Or I'm tucking my kids into bed again tonight, counting it a massive success because we made it through the day without yelling at any of them or putting them up for adoption. <laughs> like those don't fit into the expectations of big, hard, radical things for Jesus. And so sometimes we begin to think, well, maybe God isn't really pleased with that kind of stuff. And maybe God isn't pleased with me if I don't do something radical and move to deepest, darkest Africa. And this doesn't just happen actually to individuals. It can happen to church communities as well. We begin to wonder and think to ourselves, wow, I wonder, you know, we've been at this thing for 11 years now here at Jericho. Maybe we should have been twice the size as this already. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe we should have had a building by now. Maybe we would have baptized thousands and filled the arena bowl on a Sunday morning. What's lacrosse still doing in there? And when our expectations aren't met, we begin to go through life with a sense of dissonance, and that dissonance can turn into dissatisfaction. And this is what the people of Isaiah's day are confronted with. The notion that their expectations of God's actions do not match up with God's actions in any way. The narratives that they've told themselves about how life works and who they are are just not working. But part of this is they had this strong sense of an up-and-to-the-right narrative, of narrative of victory and power and being made for more than ordinary lives, made to thrive, I love the grounded expectations that Bessie brings as she challenges us to rethink our expectations. And she says this, as the church, we are called to exist in a prophetic community that gives an alternative to the narratives of the world, living out the kingdom of God in our right now, everyday, ordinary lives. See, friends, when the kingdom of God is talked about in the scriptures, Jesus uses things like mustard seeds to describe it. There's language of hiddenness. There's language of mundane faithfulness, of little actions. And it's often hidden and little for very long periods of time. It's not often showy or dripping with the trappings that would look like power or influence or world-shaking, generation-changing kind of of stuff. It looks a lot more like just asking God, Jesus, how would you be present in the fabric of my life today, my right now life here and now? And I think it's time for us to come face to face and confront the evangelical hero complex and begin to whatever ability we have to tear it down. And in order to do this, we actually have to ask questions of our own expectations. We have to say, what, what are my expectations? What are my expectations of God? What do I feel like God owes me? 
which is very strong language to even use, like we talked about last weekend. What do you feel like you owe God? What are your expectations of a Christian life? What should that look like? Where would you find that displayed in the pages of Scripture? What's your expectation of the church? What's the church to be about? What's your expectation that you bring to give and what's your expectation to receive in a community of faith? What's your expectations of leaders in a community of faith? How should they live and lead? At Jericho, we talk about authentic community. What is your definition or expectation of community? And the way that we define that is we say we give each other permission not to pretend. That's our expectation, that people pretend in our culture and we're giving each other permission to take the masks off. What's your expectation of yourself, your own life, your own journey? Where did you think you'd be at by now in your life or in some section of your life? You may want to spend some time this week actually pushing into some of these questions and asking yourself, what are my expectations? And what shaped those expectations? What gave me certain ideas about who I am and about who God is? Maybe you grew up in a home that had unhealthy things modeled for you. Mike spent time a couple weekends, a couple weeks ago at Fusion on Thursday night describing and talking out what does it mean that God is our Father and how can that trip us up if maybe we've not had the best of experiences with our earthly fathers. And so for some of us, we just our expectations have been set by things that are even unconscious and we need to explore those a little bit more. Looking, that's looking into the past, what set your expectations. How about what your expectations are being fed by in the present. Are you feeding your expectations a healthy and balanced diet? What expectations are being fed in your life? There's a sense for some of us that we have false expectations around some things. And false expectations need to be starved. Do not continue to give them the fuel that it has been fueling and growing them in your heart. The Bible calls this repentance. Acknowledging, whoop, that was wrong, and I need to turn and make and move in a different direction. What false expectations do you have that need to be repented of? Maybe for you, you need to explore those questions of your expectations and try to build things into your life that would help nurture positive expectations. These would be spiritual practices, things like meeting God in his word, things like spiritual friendships or community where you're in a life group and allowing people to speak into your life. Things like you're opening yourself up to periods of silence and solitude and letting God reshape your expectations of who he is and how he wants to work. So maybe for you, there's a spiritual practice that you need to say, you know what, it's time to fire that up again in my life. I need to engage in that this week. That's going to help me nurture a healthy walk with God. It's going to feed my expectations in healthy ways. So identify a practice that this week might help you nurture a healthy walk with God. Lastly, where is God actually inviting you and expecting something of you? 
that you might want to respond to. God has placed you in your day and in your time and in your setting for a very particular reason. Students, he's put you at your school for a reason. As a parent, he's put you in that situation in your home for a purpose and for a reason. And God is inviting you to partner with him in some way in this journey this week. How is God inviting you to partner with him? Where is God inviting you to partner with him this week? And if you begin to press into that question more and more, you might find that your expectations of what God is up to and the places where God has put you align more and more and more. And ultimately, this may not turn out as you imagined. Kids may still take up the whole bed and stick their stinky feet in your face. You may not have your Pinterest perfect Christianity all put together. But know that there was one who did have and live the perfect life and died the perfect death, not just to freshen up or cover over the bad things that you have done, but to actually, by laying down his life, win the ultimate victory. Pastor Wally's going to come and lead us into a time of communion where we'll celebrate and reflect on that, and the worship team will come and lead us through when Wally's finished a few times of songs of reflection as we move into a time of communion. So let's ready our hearts for that. What a savior we have. I think by the end, the 12 disciples probably thought they kind of had it finally figured out. It took them three years of walking with him. And on that night, uh, when he goes to celebrate the Passover with them, uh, and they get together with this meal, and celebrate, and, you know, the king has come, he's entered the city, uh, all those things, and, uh, and they have their meal together, and Jesus um, blows up their expectations once more. And he picks up one of these, I don't know, maybe it was one of these, even worse, and he says, I'm going to wash your feet now. Well, hold on. We're not here for you to wash our feet. I mean, our feet are, are dirty and dusty and disgusting. And uh, yeah, that's not what we're here about. We're here to celebrate and we're here to have this meal together. And we're here to, yeah, but I'm going to wash your feet. No, you're not. Oh, yeah, I am. And he blows up their expectations again. And often we come to this table and we, we describe it rightfully so as this banquet table, this place of feast, this place where you come, where you are invited by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, your, your welcome guest at his table. I mean, what other king does that? What other president does that? I, I've, I've been a, a Canadian citizen for 48 and a half years and I have not once been invited to the table in Ottawa. Not once. Not even in Victoria. Christy Clark has still not contacted my people and said, could you get Wally at my house for lunch or dinner? But the King of Kings says, come and be a part of my table. And we come and we can have all sorts of expectations. And you should, rightfully so. But one of them should be including this. That you would come... And 
image to the world what he imaged to his disciples. I came not to be served, but to serve you. I came as the king, but one who calls you friend, and you can call me friend. Very different king. Upside down kingdom, like we just heard about. And so I went in the back, and I stole the Davies two, thank you for having two, used towels. And maybe you're thinking, even in the back of your mind, well, if you're going to implement and bring in these towels, they should at least be the holy version of the towels. The clean, the, the, the crisp, white, starched towels. That's not what Jesus used. He used the ones that you use to wash and dry your feet. And he sat around with his disciples, and he did that for them. So I can invite Jody and Daryl and uh, Mike, I think, yes, and Caitlin. They're going to come up. Uh, the worship team's going to come up and play as well. And we're going to invite you to communion. I'm going to ask Mike and Caitlin to take one of these and have it somewhere where you can see it. Daryl and Jody. And in the midst of our sanitized, crisp, clean, fit for a king table with the elements, we include the towel of the suffering servant, the one who would take on the cross for our sakes, the one who would say, come and sit at my table and be like me, the one who came to serve and not be served. And so as the uh, worship team plays for us, uh, two or three songs, how many songs Three songs. Invite you to to come forward to uh, receive the elements and to take them back to your seat and take part. We'll also have people praying available for prayer. If you'd like to be prayed for, prayed with, um, please take advantage of that. I'm not sure who's going to be up, but Meg, you'll be one, and there'll be a couple others. They'll be off on the sides. Uh, So let's do that. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that in you the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. In you we see the perfect picture of our God. In you we see the King who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who is worthy of our bended knees and our humbled hearts. And in you, we see the one who came to turn the world upside down to serve humanity in a way that would change us for eternity. And we thank you that you welcome us into that, to participate with you in that. And as we take the bread representing your body, as we drink the cup representing your blood poured out for our sins, We pray that in a fresh way we would be realigning ourselves with you in all aspects of our being. So that as we go into this week, Lord God, as we go into the days ahead, as we go into the mundane, as we go into the exciting, as we go into the routine, as we go into the unexpected, that we would be keenly aware of your presence before us and around us inviting us 
to walk together as friends. In Jesus' name.